Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I'd like to invite you to take your Bible turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And we're going to look at a large portion of chapter 1. We're going to focus primarily, however, on the last two verses of Colossians, verses 28 and 29. And today I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whatever version you have with you today. I'll read verses 28 and 29, and we'll explore other parts of chapter 1 together in the coming moments together. Colossians 1, 28, And we proclaim him, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The last words of people, especially people of note, are very interesting, if not very important. Marie Antoinette, who died executed by guillotine in October of 1793, she was a woman who knew nothing at all of hardship in her life as far as material things and being pampered were concerned, she was raised in an emperor's home in Austria. She married Louis XVI. There was great unrest, as you probably know, in France during the reign of Louis XVI. There was an uprising among the proletariat, the common people. They were starving to death. Advocates for that segment of society came to her, supposedly, and pled with her to provide for them. And she said, let them eat cake. It was not long after that that she found herself getting ready to be executed. Her last words were, pardon me, sir, I meant not to do it. She had stepped accidentally on her executioner's foot as she was being prepared to die. He is not recorded as having said anything but he went ahead and carried through with her beheading. Winston Churchill, a man of great influence, positive influence. Churchill served as prime minister of Great Britain on more than one occasion. He was not necessarily well liked, but he was well appreciated. And he took his considerable talents and offered them to save his country and in some sense to save Western civilization as it was known then as he led that nation. His last words was, I'm bored of all of it. And then he passed away. Bob Marley, some of you know that name, the great reggae artist from Jamaica, died of cancer at the age of 36. And he was an advocate for his people. He loved his homeland of Jamaica. He said as he was dying, he said, money can't buy life. He was right, wasn't he? 
can't. Jesus' last words, we read them just a few moments ago, found in the book of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The Father had conveyed authority to him. And in effect, he was doing the same thing to these men who had gathered. There were 11 of them absent because he'd committed suicide after betraying his master Jesus, Judas. The 11 came to a pre-appointed place that Jesus had told them to meet him before he ascended into heaven. Of course, he had had conversations with them more than once during that interim between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And what I noticed, and I'm sure you did, I hope you were paying attention. Always pay attention to every word of God. If we're not careful, we'll miss it. The Great Commission itself overshadows verses 16, 17, and 18 many times. But did you notice when they arrived there, it said they worshiped him. And the word for worship in the Greek New Testament is a word which means to prostrate oneself before others. They fell on their faces before their Lord as they worshiped. And then almost as a parenthetical statement, Matthew writes, but some doubted. That would be at least two, wouldn't it? At least two of them doubted, maybe more than two of the 11. Does that strike you as odd? They had seen Jesus on more than one occasion. Luke's rendition of one of the visitations that Jesus had with his disciples indicates that they touched him. He had invited them to touch him because they had thought maybe he was just an apparition, maybe just a ghost. And then they touched him. They felt the warmth of his body and the firmness of it. They felt the skeleton underneath the flesh. And yet they doubted. Jude, in his little epistle, near the end, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you ever doubt? Well, if you're normal, you do professor of mine when I was in seminary told my New Testament class about his professor. The professor was named Ray Summers. At the time, Dr. Summers was still living. He was rather aged, probably about as old as I am. And the, the, the thing that Dr. Curtis Vaughn told us about an event that occurred when Dr. Vaughn was his student, he said that a student came up to Dr. Summers after a lecture, which had to do in large part with faith and the underside of faith, doubt. And so this young man strode up to the podium after class had been officially dismissed. And he said to Dr. Summers, Dr. Summers, I've never had a doubt. Dr. Summers looked at him and said to this fledgling theologian, he said, sir, have you ever had a thought? If we think, if we think, we are going to have some doubts along the way. But it's what we do with our doubts that really establishes us in our faith. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. I'm convinced that when Jesus gave this commission to these 11 disciples, who by the way are apostles, 
I'll talk about that if I don't forget it in just a moment. But I'm sure as they heard the word of Christ in that setting, they were filled with the Spirit and their faith was renewed. There's nothing like our meeting with Jesus Christ personally that will regenerate or regroup a faith that is scattered and battered by life and the difficulties of life. Jesus' last words. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The word nations is a word which sounds like this in the original language, ethne. And it means people group, actually. It's not nations as we think of nations with man-made borders. All people groups go and make disciples of all those people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then also teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have taught you, things you've seen me do and things that you have heard from me as far as things I want you to do. The Lord wants us as heirs of that, that group of disciples, in a sense, to share the gospel. And you might say, well, pastor, you know, I'm not one of the 11, and I know that. I'm not either. But what I also know, without a shadow of a doubt, that each man and woman in this room who seeks to know Christ you are called out of darkness into his marvelous light to declare his glory in the world, in your place of influence. And we all have places of influence. And if we want to be used by God, he will undoubtedly use each one of us. He created us for his glory to be used by him. And what we need to understand is the word of choice of the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the writing of the Bible for you and for me is disciple. The word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament. Does that surprise you? Only three times. You know how often the word disciple shows up? Over 260 times. It's not just talking about the apostles when it's used. It's talking about us. A disciple is a lifelong learner. A disciple is an apprentice of the person of Jesus Christ. And the good news for us is that the scripture has as its primary subject the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I've thought about this Great Commission a lot over my lifetime. I was made to feel guilty many times as I listened to somebody like me talking about going into the far reaches of the world to share the gospel. And I thought, do I have to be a missionary? Well, that's not the case, and here's why. There are needs for missionaries all over the world. Praise God for people who sense the leadership of the Lord. But what we need to understand is that the commission, as it's so called, only has one major verb in it, and it's simply make disciples. As you go, make disciples. As you live and move and have your being in El Paso, as you go to work, as you go to places of social interaction, 
as you live in your home, in your community, with your family, and with your friends. When you have encounters with people and get to know other people, what is God telling us to be ready to do? To make disciples. We'll never know in this life how the Lord has used us by our being faithful to seek with His help, His power, His presence, because lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. God uses us, Jesus wants to use us as we follow Him in the train of His glory and His power, He will use you and me to change the world. You say, well, that's grandiose, Mike. Get off your high horse, man. Be real. I'm being as real as I know how to be with you this morning. God has brought people into this city since I've been here in 27 years. I've seen it over and over again. People who come, and they don't even know why they end up here sometimes. From other nations, other cultures, they're here for a while. They come to know Jesus Christ. They are helped to grow in Christ and understand the joy of being a disciple of Christ. And then the Lord sends them back to their places of origin many times. And when they go back, they are emissaries. They're ambassadors for Christ. As David prayed in his prayer, we are ambassadors for Christ to share Christ. Now that's all the introduction. Hopefully we'll get through the sermon here in just a moment. But we want to look at what a disciple-making church looks like. Jesus Christ wants every one of his bodies to look like him. I think that would be accepted by everybody here. And we who make up the body of Christ, known as Coronado Baptist Church, one part of a larger body in this area and region, no better, but no less responsible for sharing this great gospel and helping people become disciples. He wants us to, as a church, be disciple-making church. Look again in our passage in Colossians. Notice the way in which it begins. And we proclaim Him. What does not appear, listen here, what does not appear to us, but any Greek reader would have known immediately where the emphasis was being laid by Paul and, in effect, by the Holy Spirit of God. The word we appears first in the sentence. And the first word in any sentence of any writing or any speech, the first word of any sentence was the word that was meant to be emphasized. We. This is not something for the professionals in this church or any other church. In fact, if it continues to be left to the professionals, to win the world for Christ. We haven't done it in 20 centuries, have we? Where is the disconnect? The disconnect is in the thought that this is only for a select group of believers in Jesus Christ. It's not. It's the purview and the great privilege of all of us who know Christ. We are a team. That's what we are. We work together. And the newest born believer to the most mature believer form 
a team. Now let's look at the ingredients of disciple making. What does the Lord have in mind for us as a church when it comes to disciple making? Here's the first thing that we see. Our message is Jesus Christ. That is number one. We proclaim whom? Him, Jesus Christ. Incredible message that we have. But before we get into looking at the person of Christ, let's stop and consider possible other messages that we may have that we deliver to people. Sometimes we preach about ourselves as people like me, people who have access to people like you and have an audience, as it were. We preach ourselves, but the Apostle Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians, verse 5 of chapter 4, he says, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. This is our message, church. It's a simple message. Jesus is Lord. Simple to grasp intellectually, much more challenging to grasp volitionally. But what Christ has called us to do is to acknowledge His Lordship, not just with our minds, but with our lives. Where Jesus Christ is Lord, people are submitted to Him. And He is the focal point of their lives. And He determines the tenor of their lives. And He uses those people to change the landscape of their world. This is what the Lord wants for you and me. We can preach our church, Coronado Baptist Church, Coronado Baptist Church, Coronado Baptist Church. Look, we're not to do that either. We saw last week when we took a glance at 1 Corinthians, how Paul was upset to say the least when he wrote 1 Corinthians to that group of immature believers. He said, some of you say, I'm of Paul. Others say, I'm of Apollos. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas. And there's a group of you which says, I am of Christ. He said, who is Paul? Did Paul die for you? Was he crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. They were going around personalities or little cliques. They formed their own little pockets of Christianity, if you will, in that city of Corinth. We're not to preach ourselves. We're not to preach our church. We're not to get hung up on things that are irrelevant, that we have a habit of getting tied up in. Look, we have an incomparable person whose life is displayed in the Scripture. And as I've mentioned already, by Jesus' own words, starting with Moses, and going to the Psalms and going to the prophets, he opened the Word of God. And the result was that people saw Jesus in the Word of God. Jesus is the subject. So the Word of God, we go to the Bible and we seek to understand it. We seek to properly interpret it and apply it. And then we grow. We have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. How does that work? We have Scripture. And when we look at the life of Christ and we begin to see the things which He did and we believe what the Bible says, 
that we are to observe all things whatsoever Christ taught the apostles. Now that's a tall order, isn't it? Have you ever thought about examining the things which we have in the Gospels, which are said by Christ? And there are a few other smattering of some of his sayings outside the Gospels. I did about eight years ago, I thought, I'm just going to go through the New Testament and write down every command that Jesus gave. You would be surprised how few of them there are. There aren't many under 35. And they're graspable. We can understand them. They're not hard to understand at all. They're plain, plainly presented. And so we each have the capacity to study those and to do what Jesus says to do. The Lord never gives a command to you or to me without giving us the corresponding power to obey what he tells us. We're to proclaim him. And one of the most outstanding passages in the New Testament about the person and work of Jesus is right here in the first chapter. So let's look at the four things that are obvious about Jesus in this passage. We're to proclaim him, his person, and his work. He is our Redeemer. Look at verses 13 and 14, chapter 1 of Colossians. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow, that's a mouthful. There's no way I can do justice to this. The Holy Spirit has to do His work for us to understand it. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. Before God came and He saved us from our sins through the person of Jesus Christ and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But also another metaphor that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians that we were darkened in our understanding. We were in the dark. Do you remember before you received Christ? Did it seem sometimes like you were walking around in a fog? Some people are in this room this morning who don't know Christ. I don't know who you are. I don't have any idea. But I would imagine there's someone or some small group of people present who don't know Jesus Christ. And maybe all I've said so far is just so much palaver to you. It's just nothing to you. Well, that could be because of my poor attempt at presenting the truth, but it could be because you're still in the domain of darkness. But Jesus came to deliver us, to transfer us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And what is characteristic of that kingdom? It's a kingdom of light, isn't it? Understanding, insight, life, it's vibrant. And we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This word redemption would have been a word that would be known by every inhabitant, practically, of the Greco-Roman world in Paul's time. Any city of any size had a trade of slavery. There were 60 million slaves in the Greco-Roman world. And 
people of course would go there to purchase a human being can you imagine purchase a human being who belonged to that person but there were often occasions when people who were relatives of a slave or a friend of a slave had saved money and went there and bought that individual out of slavery into freedom, not to be indentured to the buyer, but to be set free. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. When he died on the cross, he paid the ultimate price of his own blood, dying for us, giving his life for us, so that we could be set free from the domain of darkness and who might be the ruler of the domain of darkness? Certainly we know. Satan, he is the prince of darkness, is what the Bible says, the prince of this world. The forgiveness of sins. Oh my, I need to take a breath when I think about that and think about the incredible gift that is ours. We saw last week, we took a short tour of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And the last aspect that God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah is that their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Can you believe it? This word forgiveness is a word which was used to describe a catapult in this era. And you know what a catapult, it was an instrument of war and it used leverage and large boulders to batter the walls of besieged cities and those who operated the catapult would pull it back and let it go with great force and those boulders would go and batter and terrorize the inhabitants of the city and they went far away it was a missile really forgiveness God has launched our sin and it's been buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness is what the Bible says that is unbelievable we are redeemed by Jesus talk about a message if that's all we had that'd be more than enough wouldn't it but we have more he's not only our Redeemer he's also the revealer of God look at verse 15 and he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. J.B. Phillips says he's the visible expression of the invisible God. If we've seen Jesus, we have seen God. You remember when Philip, I like Philip, the apostle, he's always asking pertinent questions. He seems a little slow in the uptake at times, but nevertheless, he doesn't let it keep him from asking Jesus questions that he needs an answer for and knows that Jesus is the one who has the answer. And he said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. They've been waiting. This is right before Jesus himself is going to be crucified. And Jesus has just been going through a beautiful description of what he was about to do and how he was going to ask the Father to send another helper that he might be with them forever. And it just went right over Philip's head, probably the others too. But Jesus said, have I been so long with you, Philip, 
and you still do not know him, know me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, you know God the Father. He is the visible expression of the invisible God. In the introduction, the last verse of what is called the prologue of the Gospel of John, we read these words in John chapter 1 about Jesus, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And He is the one who has explained God to us. This fascinates me, maybe one or two other people in the room. It may not mean much to the rest of you. But the word explained is the word that's used to describe what I'm trying to do today. Exegete the Scripture. It's the word exegete, which means to take the meaning of Scripture out and put it in a way that people can better understand what is contained in a passage of Scripture. Jesus is the full expression of God the Father. Look at chapter 2, verse 9, right quick. Look at what this says. In 2.9, for in him, this is Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's a mouthful. All the fullness of the deity. And this word, fullness, was used to describe a sailing vessel, a merchant vessel in biblical times, which was fully equipped for anything they might wish to accomplish on the mission or encounter on the way. There's nothing that's missing in the person of Jesus Christ as far as his being fully God. Fully man, yes. Fully man and fully God. He is, first of all, our Redeemer. He is the revealer of God. This is our message. Do we have a powerful message? It's adding, adding, adding. Here's the third aspect of that message. He is the ruler of the universe, and he's the ruler of his church. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. The scientists can chew on that a while. In John's Gospel, I've alluded to it just a moment ago in the introductory remarks. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and nothing came into being that has come into being except through Jesus Christ. He is the Creator. But in addition to that, did you notice it in verse 17? He is before all things. He preexisted. And in him all things hold together. And the word hold together is a verb which suggests they're held together by him until he gets ready to let go of them. We know that's coming. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But meanwhile, he holds it all together. If Jesus Christ were, taking, were to take his hand off of the universe for one nanosecond, it would disintegrate just like that. He is the ruler of the created order. And verse 18 says, he's also head of the body, the church. I remember, finally, 
my son, probably, he was probably about eight years old. I can't remember his exact age. But one day, just out of the clear blue, he said, Daddy, you're the boss of the church, aren't you? (laughs) There was a message for me in that, frankly. I said, no, son, Jesus is the boss of the church. This church has only one boss. And it's no human being. Well, he is a human being. Excuse me, Lord. It's Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. It's been said that Jesus Christ is present in every true believer. If Jesus lives in you, he's present in you. It's also been said on the heels of that that Jesus is prominent in some Christians. In other words, you know the person's a believer. But that same person who put these ideas on paper and print said, but he's only preeminent in a few. You know what preeminence means? He's Lord. May I say, if you are cheating Jesus Christ out of his lordship, you're a fool because you were created to be his servant. What higher rank can a human being have than to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Sometimes I fuss and fret internally more than outwardly because I've got an image to protect, of course, about certain situations or certain people in my life that are bugging me and they just irritate me to death. You may find that hard to believe that some of you do that to me, but it's true. (laughs) Just like I do to you. I mean, we're human, right? But I was thinking about such a situation in the last couple of days and I've gotten upset about something I had to take care of that somebody blue, and I was reminded of a verse in Colossians. Since we're there, let's just flip over to the third chapter. Colossians. Verse 24. It's one sentence, and it was written to Christian slaves. Imagine that. It said, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I said, okay, Lord, thank you for reminding me. When I'm having trouble serving another brother or sister in Christ, and I don't think they have a right to tell me what they're telling me or making me do in effect what they're making me to do, you know what? I just say, Lord Jesus, it's you whom I'm serving. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. Thank you for letting me represent you. Thank you for what you're doing in my life in this moment to humble me and help me become more like you, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, Lord. Be that in me, Lord. He is our ruler, isn't he? He is... Lastly, in this section, verses 20 through 23, 
He is our reconciler. How important is this? If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? I'm in the second chapter, sorry. I should have stayed in the first chapter. Let's go back there. Let's look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So Jesus is our reconciler. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that means made right by faith, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. We have a great message, don't we? And the message is the person of Jesus. Let's look at the second thing that we learn in Colossians 1, 28. Our method is to proclaim Christ. We proclaim Him. We are to always be ready to proclaim Jesus. Just to share Jesus with people admonishing every man and teaching every man. The word admonish means to set one's mind in proper order through correction. Most scholars, when you would consult them as to what group of people Paul probably had in mind, he was probably talking about people who were seekers after God, people who had yet to receive Christ, it would be equivalent to evangelizing them and helping them to understand their need for Christ and that Christ has met their needs as redeemer and revealer and ruler and reconciler. 